Hey, I'm Jesse. Let's have another devotion and let's recap some of the mountaintop moments we've seen throughout 1 Corinthians. This whole thing was prompted by a letter, perhaps from the household of Chloe, written to Paul. And for that reason, its content is really diverse. He talks about sex in chapter seven. He talks about lawsuits in chapter six. He talks about food sacrifice to idols in chapter eight. He talks about people dropping dead for disobeying God in chapter 10. He talks about communion in chapter 11 and also people dropping dead if they mess up communion. He talks about spiritual gifts in chapter 12, specifically tongues in chapter 15, the resurrection, the second coming of Christ in chapter 15. I mean, everything you can imagine just gets covered. And it's not that Paul has ADD, it's that he's going through the punch list given to him by the letter that was written to him. So I wanted to go back and review some of these mountaintop moments. All right, we've already, uh, uh, we've, we've already covered this text. There was one passage that I wanted to go back to in chapter 11, and we will this week in case you weren't with us in our series on the ordinances. But within the book of 1 Corinthians and among the numerous passages uh, that, we've, that we've covered, I did, want to, I did want to review some of these things. Let's go back really quickly and recover some of the stuff that was at the very beginning to look at the book broadly. Paul called as an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints with all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, like we were saying to the Redemption Church in our devotions last week, it, it's all affectionate, which is so striking because this letter is so confrontational and this church was so deeply messed up. It's, it's a beautiful model for church where you're just met with grace and love and greetings and affection because these, these guys had a long list of sins, but God's grace is unending. There's only one person in the whole church that's being called to be kicked out. And that's the guy who's been having an ongoing affair with his stepmother in chapter five. And he's been, they're reminded to exercise church discipline. But even then, the hope is that this guy is saved on the day of the Lord. So <clears throat> he opens up with this beautiful, affectionate word. He's addressing some of their divisions. Look at chapter one, verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. It's quoted Isaiah 29 verse 14 there. Where's the one who's wise? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to, to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. This is the theme that's gonna run throughout chapters one and two. It all comes back to Christ and him crucified. Paul did not come to the church at Corinth with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. This is so cool because we know what he's gonna talk about in chapters 12 through 13. And now having been given his exposition on 
the catalog of spiritual gifts in chapter 12. See also uh, Ephesians and Romans. But now we know what he's talking about in this demonstration of the Spirit's power. We know that all of it comes back to Christ on the cross, Christ on the cross, Christ on the cross. He's gonna come back to Christ on the cross again in chapter 15 when he gives this distillation of what the apostles taught, that Christ was, Christ was Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. The first time we ever see those words, that he died for our sins, that was in chapter 15, verses one through four. And that he was buried, okay? Like for, for you to have a, really have a resurrection, you gotta truly have a death. It wasn't that Jesus had a bad day on the cross, he died and he was buried. And then on the third day, he rose again, according to the scriptures. This is the apostolic testimony recounted in verses one through four of chapter 15. It all comes back to Christ and him crucified. We saw that in chapter 15, but guess what, man? He was foreshadowing it all the way here in chapters one and two. Look at chapter chapter two's intro. You'll see more of what I'm talking about. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with wise and with persuasive words of wisdom, meaning it didn't come from worldly wisdom, the word of the dude in a worldly, uh, a worldly, a worldly rubric for wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might, might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. This is exactly what he would go on to uh, expound upon in chapters 12 through 13, and then chapter 14, even rebuking the church at Corinth for their abuse of the gift of tongues in particular. That it's about, a, it's about Christ and him crucified. The world thinks this is foolish. Those who are perishing look at Christ on the cross as though, it, as though it were total foolishness. They don't understand the atoning significance of Christ on the cross. They don't understand it when they look at it, but to those of us who are being saved, it's everything. It's atonement, it's deliverance, it's the payment for our sins, it's the hope for our lost souls. His rhetorical question in verse 20 is also inadvertently true today. We can only speculate as to those to whom, uh, those with whom Paul was disagreeing in chapter 15. It's possible that the, the letter to Paul prompting his uh, uh, discourse on the resurrection in chapter 15 came from the Greek distaste for the idea of resurrection. It's possible that these were the Stoics, that these were the Epicureans, uh, the two converse sides of the same coin that is Gnosticism. It's possible, but the very fact that we're not sure proves that Christianity survived when these philosophies did not, ultimately. Where is, uh, where is the one who's wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? And indeed, where are they? We don't know where they are. We don't even know exactly which philosophies Paul's talking about. We believe they could have been Stoicism. We believe it could have been Epicureanism. Those were really prevalent philosophies during that day. They're the same, the same uh, pagan faith systems that prompted the writing of First and Second and Third John. But we're not really sure who it was. These people denied Christ and the cross, and now they're nowhere to be found. So if you want to be on the right side of history, be on God's side of history. Let it all come back to Christ and Him crucified and your life will be of eternal significance forevermore. You'll not be scattered with the ashes of your empire, as were the philosophers of Paul's age. Rather, you will be proclaiming a wisdom that is beyond human wisdom, a demonstration of the very spirit and power of God. It's only possible to say that Jesus is Lord and believe in his resurrection from the dead by the power of the spirit of God. It is such a demonstration of the spirit's power that Paul said his whole ministry to Corinth centered upon so if you want to be on Paul's side of history, just 
use every, uh, teach everything, speak everything, believe everything, and live your life according to this lens right here, Christ and Him crucified. It all comes back to Christ and Him crucified. A lot of our sermons may be, you know, 80 plus percent based on discipling believers, but they always come back to Christ and Him crucified. There's always a gospel presentation. You're always on my heart, my skeptical friend, for example. So Paul set that standard in chapters one and two, and now that we've finished the book, we know it's true. That's right. He did. He did stick with Christ and Him crucified all the way into the penultimate chapter. Chapter 15 would come back to Christ and Him crucified. Evidently, looking back, Paul did exactly what he said he would do. We do well to imitate that.